in the service. Well, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. You know, we went through the Gospel of John verse by verse. The very next book is Acts. We're going to start in chapter 1, but we are not going to go through the whole book verse by verse. Uh, We did that about 15 years ago, I think. I preached through the book. But uh, this morning, I just want to bring this thought about the ascent or the ascension. And along with that, the work of the Holy Spirit and the risen Christ in the church age. Those all kind of flow together as, uh, as you'll see. So uh, let's pick up one verse from this first chapter, verse 9. And uh, these, this uh, book is written by Luke, the same one who wrote the Gospel of Luke, Luke the physician and Luke the partner of Paul on some of his journeys. And in verse 9, you've got your place now, look at it. And when he had spoken, that's Jesus, when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. John didn't tell about the ascension, so I thought we needed to talk about this today to kind of put an exclamation mark on the, on the uh, book of John, the ascension, the work of the Spirit, and the risen Christ. Father, thank you for the good singing. Lord Jesus, thank you that we know what you did for us on the cross and in our own personal salvation. How grateful we are. Speak to us now through your word and give us ears to hear, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I got saved when I was 16, almost 17. I didn't grow up in church. I didn't uh, know all those wonderful Old Testament stories. I remember when I would hear hear a preacher preach some of those Old Testament stories after I got saved. I thought they were the most remarkable things I had ever heard. And, uh, but almost immediately I wanted other people to get saved. And so I started inviting people from our high school. Karen and I went to a big inner city high school. And by this time, we were already sweethearts. We became sweethearts when we were uh, 13, 12, 13. uh, But I started inviting uh, uh, people to church, and not only to a Sunday, but to revival meetings. I would get the newspaper, look for revival meetings, Mark those, and Karen would help me with that, and sometimes Karen would go, sometimes she had other obligations, and I would go to revival meetings at different churches all over town, and uh, you could just about go year around, because there's so many churches had them, they had so many of them back then, and I would invite men, uh, young, young men, high school boys, to go with me to those meetings. Now, you know, they made fun of me a little bit when I first got saved, and and they accused, jokingly accused me of the reason, why do you want to go to church? Do they, you know, do they have pot parties afterwards or something like that? You know, they like to joke about it. But uh, a lot of them went. And a lot of them from the football team. I was on the football team, and I, and, and I got a lot of guys to go. And many of them, 
made commitments to Christ. They would go forward in the service and kneel and pray and so forth. And, and, um, and so when we would get back in the car and we were talking about it, and I said, well, did you get saved? And, and every one of them said, no, I was already saved. I rededicated my life. Well, that was wonderful because they said they were saved, and I sure didn't know it because they talked like everybody else and walked like everybody else that were not saved, but I was glad. And then one day at the lunch table, I invited a, <coughs> a young man named Roger Lawrence. Lawrence was not an athlete. I just knew him from school, and sometimes we'd sit together and eat, and he said, yeah, he'd go to a revival with me. So I picked him up. Like all these guys, I'd go by and pick them up and take them and bring them back. And so it was just me and Lawrence that night. And, and uh, we went to the meeting. And uh, when the invitation was given, Lawrence went forward. And uh, when we got back in the car and we were driving home, I figured Lawrence was like everybody else. I said, Lawrence, did you rededicate your life? He said, no. He said, I got saved. <laughs> You know, you never know. There's a lot of Lawrences out there that'll come to church if you'll ask them. A lot of folks will be like the football team. They might come and rededicate their life. Maybe they're not living for Christ now. Be a witness. God calls us to be a witness with our words, with our, with our lives. And Jesus is going to, of course, emphasize that right before his ascension. Now, I want us to think about the, something else. In my studies about uh, how to lead people to Christ and so forth, I kept coming across this phrase, being filled with the Spirit. And so I, uh, uh, I began to buy books. You know, when you're a young Christian and you didn't grow up in church, I was amazed at something called a Christian bookstore. I didn't know those things existed. But I found out you could go in there and they got books on everything you can think of. And I used to be in there for hours. <laughs> Karen can tell you that. And, uh, and so I bought a lot of books on being filled with the Spirit. And that went right along with the idea of witnessing. And so it does in this passage as well. Now the name of this book is Acts. You might have in your particular Bible, it may say, The Acts of the Apostles which is good and fine. In the originals, though, or, or in the uh, oldest manuscripts, I should say, uh, it was just the word Acts. Uh, the uh, Acts of the Apostles was just was added later to help us understand what the book is about. People often, though, have said it should be, instead of Acts of the Apostles, it should be Acts of the Holy Spirit. And I think that's even better yet. But I think, more so, it should be acts of the risen Christ. This is what Christ is doing in the church after his resurrection and ascension back up to heaven. And uh, he's working through his people in the church age still today. By the Holy Spirit, of course, but it's the Lord Jesus who is the still Lord and Master and it is he who is building his church. So the book of Acts, Acts of the Risen Lord. Let me show you a couple of other places where uh, the ascension 
is mentioned. In uh, Mark, so then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. God the Son, sitting at the right hand of God the Father. And then Luke mentions it too. Matthew doesn't, and neither does John. Luke puts it like this. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass, while he blessed them, that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. What a beautiful moment that was. Forty days after the resurrection, he ascended back to heaven. Well, now in ver we're going to work our way towards verse 9 and then even after verse 9. So let's just go through these first verses rather quickly. Look at verse 1. It says, the former uh, treatise. The word treatise means a formal or official written account of some subject. So he says, the former treatise that I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Uh, and then, so he, he wrote a former treatise. That would be the Gospel of Luke. Remember, Luke and Acts are companion, they're volumes. Uh, Luke wrote them both. And uh, Luke uh, picks up in Acts where he left off in the Gospel of Luke. A little bit of overlap here with the ascension. As you can see. Now notice the name Theophilus. Oh, Theophilus. This is a person. And uh, Luke had in mind this person when he's writing the gospel and also uh, Acts. We don't know who this person was. Even history doesn't help us with this. Uh, we just don't know who this person was. Mentioned twice. Uh, the other time, it was in Luke, when, when Luke starts the gospel, he mentions him there also. But in that place, he calls them, Oh, most excellent Theophilus. The word most excellent is a title for some Roman official. So Theophilus himself was apparently a Roman official of some sort. And uh, so we know that much about him. His name means friend of God or love for God. And we know that much about him. Whether he was a true believer or not, we don't know. Maybe Luke was trying to win Theophilus. Or maybe he was already a believer and Luke was just filling him in on all the details. And so he speaks of what Jesus began both to do and teach. Think about what Jesus did. All the miracles, healing of lepers and straightening crippled legs so people could walk, raising the dead. And then think of what he taught. Think of the teaching. You remember that group of, uh, group of uh, officials, uh, police, Jewish police came back to the uh, Sanhedrin. They were supposed to have arrested Jesus, but instead of arresting him, they said... Never a man spake like this man. We've heard a lot of political speeches and religious speeches, but we never heard anything like this. Mankind had never heard a sermon like the Sermon on the Mount or the parables of Matthew 13. 
or the upper room discourse. He began to do and teach. By the way, the word do and teach are both in a tense in the Greek that means continual action. He, he did teach and he did do, but also he's still doing and he's still teaching, and that's true even today, isn't it? He's still doing and still teaching. Look, until, uh, look at verse uh, 2, until the day in which he was taken up. Now there's a reference to the ascension. Actually, historically, there was only three places where the ascension is mentioned. You've seen all three of them now. Here in Acts, uh, Mark, and Luke that I showed you a moment ago. And, uh, but the ascension is mentioned in one form or another 20 times in the Gospels and the book of Acts put together. And it uses 13 different words the Holy Spirit uses to describe the ascension. For instance, look back at verse 2. And, and until the day in which he was taken up. That phrase, taken up. If you look back over at verse 9, where we read for our text, it says in the middle of the verse, he was taken up. Translated exactly the same way in the English language, but two different Greek words. And so there's 20 references, 13 different words to describe the ascension. And uh, so he was taken up, and then after that he, that is, before he was taken up, uh, that is, he was taken up after he had given commandments. It's kind of an awkward wording there. After that, he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. The word apostles is used 69 times in the book of Acts. It's an important word. But it describes a small group, 12, and of course Matthias will, will take the place of, of uh, Judas, and there'll still be 12 then. But also Paul and a couple of his companions were called apostles as well, apostle to the Gentiles. And so, but the apostles were a small group, and uh, he had spoken to them. We know from other passages, spoken to other people as well, his followers, but the scripture is not just speaking to apostles. He's speaking to all of us in this church age. Uh, in particular, he's talking to Theophilus, but extended out, he's talking to all of us. Look at verse 3. To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion. The word passion means suffering, intense suffering. After his passion by many infallible proofs being seen of them forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. This is the only place we're told how many days Jesus was on the earth after his resurrection. It's the only place. Forty days he was uh, on the earth before he ascended back. That is, after his resurrection. And uh, notice he showed himself alive with many infallible proofs. The word infallible means... Uh, undeniable, uh, absolute uh, proofs of his resurrection. It also carries the idea of, uh, of something that's tangible. It wasn't just the proof, like in a courtroom where someone can bear witness and speak the truth uh, about something and give proof. 
But this word carries with it the idea of something you can touch, something you can see, something you can handle. Remember Jesus saying to the disciples, touch me. See, I'm not a ghost, and I have a a body, flesh, and bone. And they touched him. They handled him. And for 40 days, he proved himself to them in all of these many ways. And then he was speaking to them pertaining to the kingdom of God. Now, no doubt they spoke about, or I would think, they spoke about the upcoming kingdom, the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign when Jesus was set upon the throne. But he probably spoke to them, too, about this invisible kingdom, this spiritual kingdom that's going on right now. Jesus said in Luke 17, 21, the kingdom of God is within you. You know that familiar passage in the... In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Seek you first the kingdom of God, and all these other things will be added unto you. That is all your physical needs, but seek first the kingdom. That's the spiritual kingdom. That's the kingdom that's going on during the church age that Jesus spoke about in the parables in Matthew 13. So he spoke about this kingdom that they had entered into and were a part of and that was in their hearts. And then verse 4 says, And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem. Now notice where they are. They're in Jerusalem. The last time we saw them, they were in Galilee, the last chapter in John 21. Now they've moved back down to Jerusalem. He doesn't want them to leave Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he... Ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. So don't leave. Stay here. Something's going to happen. Now you and I know it happened exactly 10 days later on the day of Pentecost. The, The word Pentecost means 50. And it was 50 days after the feast of first fruits. Jesus resurrected on the Feast of First Fruits, and 50 days later was the Feast of Pentecost. You and I know from the New Testament that that's when the Holy Spirit came and the church was born. And then look at verse 6. When they therefore were come together, probably to eat. That's, this phrase is used often of eating. They ask of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Now they're still now they're thinking about that outward kingdom, that kingdom that's literally going to be right here on earth for a thousand years. The book of Revelation talks about it. The Old Testament prophets wrote much about it. And uh, so they're still got in mind, is, is this the time? Are you going to do it now? Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And uh, even though Jesus had been teaching them about this inner kingdom that's going to take place during the church age, they still want to know about that physical kingdom that they've been hearing about all their lives. Verse 7, And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times and seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. Uh, These things are not for us to know. Times and seasons, two different words. Times, a particular time, can be right to a very minute. And seasons is a period of time. Like, you know, like 
the fall season or the summer season and so forth. And uh, so there'll be an exact moment when those things happen and they're in the Father's care. But also they will last a while. Some of these things will last a while. The millennial kingdom will last a thousand years, but the, uh, uh, the tribulation before that will last seven years. And so uh, those are things that the Father has in his own power. Verse 8, but, the but contrasts with the question they ask. Instead of worrying about the kingdom, the, the literal future kingdom, I want you to think about this. But, this is what's for you. But, ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and into the uttermost part of the earth. Wow. Ye shall be witnesses. The word witness used 29 times in the book of Acts. It means to speak what you know to be true. Or to live what you know to be true. God wants us to be witnesses in the way we live. And in the way we speak. You may not be able to teach a class or get up and preach or something like that. But you could invite somebody to church, couldn't you? Like I said, there's a lot of Roger Lawrences out there who would come if you ask them. And maybe they'd give their heart to Christ. And there's a lot of, like my football player friends, a lot of people out of church that need to be in church. So let's witness and share. Uh, And notice the three parts. And this is kind of a, not only a history, but a... uh, diagram for us Uh, in history of course it happened first the preaching the witness took place in Jerusalem and then Judea Judea was the area around Jerusalem Jerusalem was the city Samaria was just north so then it went to Samaria and then it went to the uttermost parts of the earth on our mission program uh, on the back of our budget and there's one out in the lobby and just Sometime soon, we'll be voting on the new budget. You'll see that again. On the part about missions, we've got it broken into three areas, three divisions, just like uh, this verse 8. Uh, uh, the uh, ho- uh, local missions, that's our Jerusalem. And then we have home missions, that's missions within the United States, that's our Judea and Samaria surrounding area and then our world missions is of course going into all the world to the uttermost part of the earth notice he wanted them to wait till they had the Holy Spirit in order to do their witnessing the word power there there's two words often translated power in the New Testament one of the words means authority when it says, if you receive Christ, you have the power you, to become children of God, that's the word authority. It's your privilege to become a child of God when you receive Christ. The other word is the word power means uh, strength. It's the word dunamis in the Greek. It's where we get our word dynamite, something that can move things and so forth. And this particular word here is the word that's, that, uh, where we get our word dynamite. Uh, 
So the Holy Spirit gives us a strength beyond our own human strength to do the things that Christ has given us to do. So he said, wait in Jerusalem till the Holy Spirit comes, then you're going to be witnesses for me. Look at verse 9, that brings us to the ascent. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld him, he was taken up in a cloud, received him out of their sight. What a moment. Can you imagine being there? This particular phrase, to be taken up, is used in the New Testament of people raising, raising their hands up are raising their head toward heaven or their eyes toward heaven in praise. And so we picture this not happening in a second because they're standing there gazing at it. The next verse tells us. So apparently Jesus just begins to float up off the ground. Now they've seen miracles and miracles and miracles, hadn't they? But now I imagine... This one stuns them again. Jesus just begins to lift off the ground. And right in front of their eyes, he goes up and up until he disappears in a cloud. Some people think it's the Shekinah glory cloud. That's a consideration for another time. And so they were standing there like you and I would be with their mouths hung open. I can't believe this. Look what just happened. He kept saying it was going to happen. But here it is. And he ascended back to sit on the right hand of God the Father. What a moment in history that was. Verse 9. Now look at verse 10. And while they were looking, they were still looking towards heaven. As he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. Two angels. They're still gazing up. Now, I'm just speculating a little bit, having some fun. But can you imagine, they're so caught up in that, maybe the angels have to peck them on the shoulder to get their attention. Hey, hey, I got something to tell you. Stop looking up that way. I've got a message to deliver to you. So they're gazing up steadfastly, and here's their message, verse 11. They said, which also said the angels, which also said, ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus, which is taken up, there's a reference again, taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. Jesus is coming back again, isn't he? And he's going to come back in the same way. It'll be visible. It'll be real. He'll be in his glorified body. And people will see it. He'll come back to the Mount of Olives again, which is where he is ascending from here. So in the same way he left, he's coming back, the angel said. And of course, that's a great subject of the New Testament and the Old Testament as well. And then if we compare Luke's account of this, they worshiped. As Jesus went up, they worshiped Jesus. Maybe after the angels give their message and left, they worshiped there. They worship the risen, ascended Christ. And then with great joy, the Bible says, with great joy, they went back into Jerusalem, and there they were celebrating, praising God and blessing God and giving thanks. And uh, there in Jerusalem. Now, they also gathered together, had a business meeting, and voted Matthias in to be, 
to take the place of, uh, of Judas. Now, I've got to move kind of quickly. I've gotten too slow here. I want to now look at the, the day of Pentecost. It's ten days from chapter 1 when chapter 2 takes place. The day of Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Verse 1 of chapter 2. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there was a sound from heaven like a rushing mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. Can you imagine that? Some kind of, some kind of, Something that looked like a tongue. And as it would seem, it came and appeared over the head of each one of them. This is a miraculous thing, and this is a miraculous portion of Scripture. So they, um, this uh, cloven tongue, like as a fire, sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. Notice, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. We know they were baptized because that's what they were waiting on. But it, it doesn't mention, when it actually comes, it doesn't mention being baptized. It mentions being filled with the Spirit. So they were baptized and filled with the Spirit. And, um, and verse 4, And they were all filled with the Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Jump down for time's sake to the last uh, part of verse 6. The multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in their own language. There was people from all over and they're hearing the gospel in their own language, in their own dialect. And they were all amazed, verse 7, and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all of these which speak Galileans? I mean, that's where they originated from. They're Galileans. And how hear we every man in his own tongue wherein we were born. And so they were speaking languages they had never learned. But they were authentic, real, genuine languages. And the people who knew those languages out there could hear and understand the message. This was quite a miracle. Now there's a lot of things that could be said about tongues. And a lot of confusion today. That is, again, a message for another time. But let me at least say this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13 uh, and verse 8, it says, Tongues shall cease. Tongues shall cease. Now, some people believe the gift of tongues should run the whole gamut of the church age. And they'll cease when Jesus comes back. But Jesus is going to come back in the twinkling of an eye. The word cease there is a word that means to gradually decline. If you look up the Greek word, you'll see it means to fade out gradually. Fade out of themselves. To be put to rest. Not only to fade out, but to phase out, having served its purpose. And... Uh, when Jesus comes, there won't be a fading or a phasing. It'll be automatic when Jesus comes. But tongues 
served their purpose in that early church because there was a lot of miraculous gifts, miracle gifts. They didn't have the Scripture. And once the miracle, once the Scripture was completed, the New Testament about the end of the first century and a little bit into that next century, the supernatural gifts ceased. Now, there's still spiritual gifts, but there's no one with those, uh, those miracle gifts that was given because the Scripture says they're going to cease. So tongues have ceased. They've served their purpose. They've been phased out. But here in the book of Acts, they serve a great purpose and a miraculous gift it was. And then Peter stands up and begins to preach. Let me just look, at, look with me at just some of the things he said. Look at verse 21. And it shall come to pass, they talk about this new age and what's going on now. The church has been born. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. What a wonderful promise that is. It's repeated, of course, in Romans 10, 13. But he's saying that's the way it's going to be in the church age. You can call on the Lord and you shall be saved. You men of Israel, he says in verse 22, uh, Heed these words, Jesus of Nazareth was a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you as yourselves know. Uh, him delivered them, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and with wicked hands have crucified him whom God hath raised up. There's another phrase, raised up. Of the, of the ascension. Uh, having loosed the pains of death uh, because it was not possible that he should be held or holden by it. I'm reading quickly because my time is slipping away. You know the results then. 3,000 people were saved that day. Now I want to think about the Holy Spirit and the ascension and the risen Christ. All believers are baptized by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, We're all baptized. All of us, even the carnal ones. The church at Corinth was pretty carnal. They had a lot of sin going on, but they still were baptized by the Holy Spirit. The word baptized means to immerse or to be placed into a, into a new environment. Like when you baptize somebody in water, you place them in a new environment. The Holy Spirit places us in the body of Christ. And in union with Christ himself. So all believers are baptized of the Holy Spirit when we are saved. So you don't have to pray for or seek the baptism of the Spirit. You already have it. Thank him for it. And then all believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Romans tells us if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not his. You don't belong to him. You don't have to pray for the Holy Spirit. Don't. Don't ask the Holy Spirit to come in. He's already in. Thank Him that He's there. Uh, we are all birthed by the Holy Spirit. That is, our new birth was a miracle of the Holy Spirit. Born of the Spirit of God, Jesus said. We're all born. We're all sealed with the Holy Spirit. This sealing is a, a guarantee of heaven that heaven is ours. Nobody can break that Seal. We've been sealed by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit becomes our guarantee of uh, our future in heaven. But not all believers are filled with the Holy Spirit because we have in Ephesians 
5.18, we have a command to be filled with the Spirit. Nowhere are we told to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. Nowhere are we told to be indwelt. And nowhere are we told to be sealed. All these things have happened to us without our even knowing them. We, when you got saved, you may not have even known there was a person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. But these things happen because the Holy Spirit birthed you into the body. He baptized you uh, into union with Christ. And He came in to indwell. But we're not all filled with the Spirit. Here's that command. <clears throat> Uh-oh. There, there it goes. Uh, be not drunk with wine, we're in excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Uh, the, the text of be filled has the idea of a continual action. Be you continually filled with the Spirit. It's also an imperative. That means it's a command. We are, you are, I am. We are commanded as New Testament believers to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now in the book of Acts, when you read the historical accounts, they were filled with the Spirit over and over. So that's something you can lose and something you can you can ask for again to be filled with the Spirit. That was their experience in the book of Acts. And, uh, so here, and here's a couple of other thoughts on that. Uh, here's the King James. And here is uh, Dr. Wiest, his translation. But be constantly controlled by the Spirit. Feel, feeling is being controlled. If someone's filled with laughter... That laughter's controlling the way they think and what they do. And, of course, the, the uh, contrast in this particular verse is being drunk. Alcohol affects the way you talk and the way you live and the way, your actions and so forth. It does so in a negative way. The Holy Spirit, when you're filled with the Spirit, you're controlled by Him and it impacts your life in a positive way. Uh, so, be constantly controlled by the Spirit. And then, the Amplified says, But ever be filled and stimulated with the Holy Spirit. I've got to move fast here. Results of being filled with the Spirit. Courage to witness. Boldness. There in Acts 3, it says, or 4, it says that uh, they, when they saw the boldness of uh, Peter and John, they marveled because they were not Educated, that is, they didn't have formal education but from the rabbis. And uh, boldness is used in the scripture to describe the uh, work of the Holy Spirit. Now, boldness is often misunderstood. That's the reason I use the word courage. Boldness is not loudness, boldness is not arrogance, boldness is not being mean spirited. I've heard people describe preaching. And they said, man, he was really bold today. What they meant was he was really loud today. Now, he may have been truly bold, but a lot of times what they mean is he was really loud today. Or he was really uh, arrogant and full of himself as he criticized people. Courage to speak the word in love and compassion that's boldness doesn't have to be loud it can be whispered doesn't have to be dramatic 
it can be spoken in plain words. And so, courage to witness. And then also, being led and guided by the Spirit. And then also, effectiveness in sowing and watering. Jesus wanted them to wait. Don't go out witnessing yet. Wait for the Holy Spirit. Wait for that power so that it is effective. The gospel is coming from you in an effective way. Whether you're sowing the seed or watering the seed or reaping the seed. And then the last thing is this. Living authentically to create a hunger. The idea of this is that when people see us as spirit-filled Christians, they see something real and authentic and something worth having in us. The reference there, of course, is to the fruit of the Spirit. When we're filled with the Spirit, He sheds abroad His fruit in our hearts. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, meekness, and temperance. When people see genuine, authentic Christians in the workplace and in the community and in the home, it makes them know they've got something worth having. So being filled with the Spirit will help you with this. I, at this point, I probably ought to say being filled with the Spirit will make you a better husband. It'll make you a better wife. It'll make you a better mother, father. It'll make you a better son or daughter. It'll make you a better worker at work. And on and on. It affects every aspect of our life. And then, uh, how to be filled with the Spirit. Let me give it quickly. Confess and keep on confessing. We have to be clean. We all make mistakes. We all sin. So confess those sins as soon as they happen and keep that attitude of confession along the way. Confessing your sin. And then yielding and keep on yielding. Romans 6 says, yield yourself to God. But that's not only an act, it's an attitude. So there may be a certain time when you truly yield your life completely, your hands, your feet, your lips, your mind, your heart. You yield yourself to the risen Christ. But then you've got to keep it as an attitude. So yield and keep on yielding. And then trust and keep on trusting Paul kind of summarizes the Christian life in Galatians 2.20. He says, Christ dwelleth in me, and the life which I now live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Faith, trust. That's how he lived his daily life. Faith and trust. By the way, some people see Jesus... As the main character in the, in the uh, Gospels. And then they see the Holy Spirit in Acts that has taken Jesus' place here on earth. And he's the main uh, character in the book of Acts. I do not think that is the case. And I think people, uh, it's unfortunate when people emphasize that. It does make kind of a neat little package for people to say, you know. But Jesus is still the exalted Lord right now. He's the one we worship. He's the one we serve. He's the one we look to. And Paul didn't say, I live by faith in the Holy Spirit. He says, I live by faith in the Son of God. And as you exercise faith in the Son of God, then the Holy Spirit does what He wants to do. Empower you. Strengthen you. And so, trust. And then keep on trusting. Because remember, you've got to keep on being filled. Be filled and keep on being 
field. And then the last thought is this. Call and keep on calling. Remember when Jesus said in Matthew 7, he said, uh, Ask and keep on asking and it shall be given you. Seek and keep on seeking, you shall find. Knock and keep on knocking, and it shall be opened unto you. Ask and keep on asking. As a definite act, ask the Lord to fill you. Ask the risen, ascended Lord to fill you with the Holy Spirit and empower you and control you. And then keep that attitude of asking all through the day. Like you're, if you slip up, you confess. You keep yielding. You keep trusting. You keep asking, feel me. It becomes an attitude of...